Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I told Josh that we were going to be introduced by one of the most famous booksellers in America, <laughs> Emily Pullen. Um, so I'm just the opening act tonight for Josh, whose collection, Pulp and Paper, has just come out, and I'm really, really excited. I don't think we've seen each other since 2006, so that's really exciting. Um, I'm actually not going to read from my completed novel. I decided to do something bold and crazy and read from my novel in progress. Just, why not? I was just listening to Roger Ebert on NPR. Did anyone hear it? It was really inspiring, and he was just making himself vulnerable. He showed, put pictures online of his, with his jaw messed up, and he was like, do it. I was like, yeah, this is my messed up jaw right here. So, it's just a short little opening. It has not, it doesn't have a title, but if you have any ideas, let me know. On the map, their destination had been a stretch of green, as if they would be living on a golf course. No freeways nearby, or any roads, really. Those had been left to rot years before. Frida had given this place a secret name, the afterlife, and on their journey, when they were forced to hide in abandoned rest stops, or when they'd filled the car with the, the last of their gasoline, this place had beckoned. In her mind, it was a township, and Cal was the mayor. She was the mayor's wife. Of course, it was nothing like that. The forest had not been expecting them. If anything, it had tried to throw them out again and again. But they had stayed, perhaps even prospered. Now Frida could only laugh at the memory of herself two years ago, dragging a pallet of possessions behind her with a groan, her nails bitten to shit, her stomach roiling, grime like she'd never imagined. Even her knees had smelled. She should have known better, but she thought it would be easier once they arrived. But the work didn't end then. If anything, it got worse, and for months, the exhaustion and fear tick-ticked in her mind, in her body, like a dealer shuffling cards. At night, the darkness gave her a skinned-alive feeling, and she longed for her old childhood bed, for a bed, period. She had been wise to pack some, of, some things to comfort her, the dead tablet, a matchbook from their favorite bar, her artifacts, Cal later called them. In a world so disconnected from the past, her attachment to these objects was her only strategy for remaining sane. It still was. She, not, she tried not to take them out too often, but Cal had left the house to do some digging, and he wouldn't be back for at least an hour. Because he was afraid of the sun, which was relentless at that hour, he'd worn his plaid button-down and a bandana around his neck. They still had a bottle of sunscreen, but it, but it had expired and was watery as skin milk. Stay inside for a while, he'd said before he left. Frida had agreed. Where would I go? He kissed, her, he kissed her goodbye then, on the mouth, as he still did and always would. She was thinking already of the artifacts tucked away in an old briefcase, shoved under one of the unused twin cots. It had been a rough morning. 
Cal had latched the door behind him, and once his footsteps receded, she went right for the briefcase. From the small pile of artifacts, she picked up the abacus. She liked to pull the blue beads back and forth across the wires. She counted, she tapped, she closed her eyes. Frida had played with the abacus as a little girl, and even then had depended on its calming effect. Her brother Micah, two years younger, had one as well, red beads instead of blue, but one day, when he was about seven, he cut it apart and strung the beads onto a piece of yarn. He'd presented it to their mother as a necklace. Frida flicked at the beads. She, she found herself counting the days yet again. 35. I'm late, she said aloud, and her voice in the one-room house sounded small and plaintive. The clay walls seemed to breathe in the words. They would keep the secret until she told Cal. I'm late, she repeated, and willed her voice to stay steady. She'd have to tell him soon and like this. She could not be freaked out. She would have to declare it as she would any fact. Frida pulled the last bead across the abacus. It would be pleasurable, she thought, to pluck the wire from the frame and let the beads fall. She would pop one in her mouth and suck on it like a candy. But then she wouldn't have the abacus. She put the thing down and sifted through the briefcase for something better. The other artifacts wouldn't do. Not the tablet, nor the matchbook, nor the moldy shower cap that she couldn't stand to part with. Not her mother's handwritten cake recipes, already memorized and useless out here. Not the box of antique pencils, nor her bottle of perfume, halfway empty. She knew what she wanted. Unlike the other objects, the turkey baster had been new. She'd brought it with them precisely because they hadn't had one in L.A. It was something different, a simple object to mark a before and an after. She had liked the idea of using it on ho at, ho at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween's coming up. What's your baby boy going to be for Halloween? <laughs> she had liked the idea of using it at Thanksgiving, although she hadn't been sure they'd celebrate that anymore. She didn't think there would be turkeys here, and she'd been right. Thanksgiving. That holiday was so quaint in her memory, it felt like something from a storybook. Once upon a time, Goldilocks ate herself silly. Frida couldn't hold herself back any longer and pulled the baster out of the briefcase. It was stored in an old Christmas wrapping paper printed with gingerbread men and mistletoe, and she undid it slowly. She had last looked at the baster a few weeks ago, and she had taken care to put it back properly. It could not be damaged. At the store, the turkey baster had been fun to play with, squeezing its plastic bulbs so that the air farted out the glass tip. Frida had wondered if they might use it to try to get pregnant someday, their own ad hoc fertility treatment. It was funny how that had been on, been on her mind even then. But no, Frida thought now, she wasn't pregnant. She'd stop thinking about it. The baster had been on sale. The store, like so many others, was going out of business. When the first of them perished, it had seemed impossible. A chain like that, people said. As a teenager, Frida had loved to go there with her friends to marvel at the useless necessities, the soy sauce receptacles, the tiny mother-of-pearl spoons, the glass pitchers. She'd once purchased a single cloth napkin and stored it in the pocket of a coat she never wore. But on her last visit, the place had been nearly ransacked. Frida still remembered the starkness of the floodlights. They ran on a generator in the corner, illuminating the remaining coves of products which were jumbled together in plastic bins. The register was by the entrance, and the young woman who worked there accepted gold only and not jewelry. It had to be melted down already. Frida couldn't conjure the girl's face anymore, but she did remember her eyeliner. How had she gotten her hands on eyeliner? Perhaps it was an old stick of her mother's, gone to crayon at the back of the medicine cabinet. She could have sold it if she wanted to, but she hadn't. 
The girl was barely 18, more likely 16. The store shut down a week later. It had probably gone feral within the year, like the rest of the businesses at that stupid circus of a mall, one of the outdoor ones, the Grove, it was called. Maybe by now it had, it had sprouted some trees, finally earned its name. Frida held the baster by its plastic bulb, lifting it above her head. She imagined what the mall looked like now, fish swimming in its silly fountain, the water sludgy with poison. But what about the girl? Where had she gone? Back in LA, Frida had kept the ba ba baster a secret from Cal because she'd spent gold on it, gold they were saving for their journey. They would have to save for a long while to get enough money for gasoline and other supplies. She had purchased something frivolous and she knew it. Once they were leaving, she kept the baster a secret because she was afraid Cal would say they couldn't bring it with them. They could only fit so much in the car and before it ran out of gas, they would have, they would have to abandon it, carry their possessions the rest of the way. They'd ended up taking multiple trips with their stuff. There was too much to carry. And then they drove the car in the opposite direction until it sputtered dead so they couldn't be followed. It was a small miracle that they found their possessions again, piled where they'd left them, unharmed. Frida had smuggled the baster like she had most of the artifacts. Cal had eventually discovered her other things, but she'd still managed to keep the baster hidden. She'd initially intended on using it in the afterlife, in whatever way it was most needed. And then one day, she realized she wouldn't. Occasionally, she toyed with the idea of snapping off the tag and its plastic thread. She used to hate those threads so much, how they would leave holes in clothing and require scissors to remove. Those doodads were probably the whole reason America had gone to hell, the plastic leaching poisons filling up landfills. What foolishness. But she loved the turkey baster precisely because it still had its tag. She loved its newness. The pure glass of the cylinder, its fragility, and the plastic bulb still chalky to the touch and butter yellow. It inhaled and exhaled air like that first time. She had to keep it hit hidden. It belonged only to her, and the secret of it had become as precious as the object itself. Thank you. And now... And now we have Josh Rolnick. Eden, that was anything but Roger Ebert's messed up jaw. Um, it takes a lot of courage to read something new, and that was beautiful. Very cool. Awesome. Um, just a quick personal note. Um, my uh, first son was born in Iowa City um, when we were living there, and I was absolutely uh, terrified um, before he was born. And it was actually Eden who, who uh, made me feel slightly better when she told me one day in workshop, I thought she was going to tell me something about my story, and she said, I just need to tell you, from my growing up, I love the smell of desitin. And I thought, it's going to be okay. It's, it's going to be fine. Um, my collection is four stories set in New Jersey and four in New York, and I'm going to read um, first from the first story in the collection. Uh, it's called Funny Boy. I glanced out the window as my train pulled into the station and saw the girl who killed my son. I recognized her ponytail, the way it shot up and bent over on itself from the newspapers. She stood on the New York-bound platform in a hive of girls, several of whom wore West Village varsity football jackets. Missy Jones wore a pink ski vest over a white turtleneck. Her blue jeans tucked neatly into white moon boots ringed with fur. She smoked melodramatically, tilting her chin up and blowing her plume at a mock Victorian lamplight. 
As my train came to a halt, Missy tossed her head back and laughed, flashing her teeth in the mustard light. I turned from the window, buttoned my coat, lifted my briefcase. She doesn't seem very contrite, I thought, stepping off the train and starting down the platform. She seems to be coping rather nicely, in fact. The train pulled out, and I queued behind people funneling into the station. When the last car cleared, a rhythmic clapping rose from across the tracks, and I turned and saw the girls standing in a circle, clapping with their hands straight up as if in prayer. A moment later, they began to cheer, their voices echoing off the brick-faced station house. We ain't bad and we ain't cocky, gonna ride on you like a Kawasaki. Vroom, vroom. Two, three, four. Vroom, vroom. I stepped out of line. The girls started again louder. They swiveled their hips and clapped to every other syllable, then gripped the handlebars of imaginary motorcycles, twisting up the speed with each vroom. They stepped to the four count, forward, left together, right together, back. When they were finished, bless their cotton candy hearts, they whooped and hollered, their war cries reverberating under the awning, and Missy Jones said, Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. <laughs> I walked to the yellow danger line and bellowed across the tracks. Missy Jones! The ruckus ceased. Missy stepped out of the huddle and peered across the tracks. It took her a second, then her smile vanished. Mr. Stern? Yes, it's me, I said. Richie's dad. The girls shrunk together behind her, a wild herd sensing threat. Oh, uh, hi, Mr. Stern. Where are you girls off to this fine night? Uh, we're going to see Phantom. Phantom. Gee, that sounds like fun. She hesitated, then nodded. Yeah, I've seen it before. It's one of my favorites. Well, see it again for the first time, Missy. Vroom, vroom. I raised a fist in the air, offering a triple shake of an imaginary pom-pom, then whirled and headed for the station, a zesty bounce to my step. And why the hell not? Hadn't I just single-handedly ruined Missy Jones's night? By now, I hear you saying, spill it already. What's this all about? So here it is. On an unseasonably warm February day, ten months before I spied Missy Jones en route to Broadway, my 12-year-old son Richie retrieved his huffy from the garage and pedaled out into the sun-dappled streets of West Village, New Jersey. He most likely went down to the high school and cut through the parking lot, then barreled past the Quonset hut and hit the Indian trail with a full head of steam, dodging trees in the settling twilight. He shot out onto Hill. The only problem? Mrs. Edelson had died. On that unseasonably warm afternoon, her children were moving her belongings out of her home, and someone had parked a moving truck along the curb. Perhaps Richie noticed the treasure chest logo on the truck before blasting into the street between truck cab and garbage dumpster. Missy Jones, daughter of a village alderman, was on the other side of that truck, driving in her parents' shiny Acura Integra, candy apple red. She slammed on the brakes, left 21 feet of tire tread seared into the asphalt, and still, she struck Richie broadside. My son flew through the air, over a plaid sofa, and hit his head against the pavement of Mrs. Edelson's driveway. Her 42-year-old son, I am told, heard the sound of Richie's head hitting the concrete and vomited into the azaleas. Missy Jones was 17, a West Village High School junior. The entire episode was extremely, un extremely unsettling to her. She was so distraught, in fact, that she quit the cheerleading squad. 
She had lost her mirth, you see. She couldn't locate that special place deep inside where spirit lives and breathes. She told us this. She sent Anne and me a letter two months after the accident. It was actually less a letter than a heavily perfumed run-on sentence with postage. Missy told us how sorry she was, and she wasn't speeding, and she never saw him coming on the other side of that moving van, and our son is a beautiful boy, and she has nightmares now, in which she takes a rest under a tree in an open field, and she looks up, and there are dead children hanging from the branches. I'm not trying to be a one-man soap opera when I tell you. The letter was streaked with tears. Four months later, another letter arrived. Missy wanted to meet with us, to apologize in person, or as she put it, broken heart to broken hearts. Anne's instinct was to forgive, as it always is. She told me about the ancient Samoan ritual of Ifoga. In that culture, it seems, when one person seriously wronged another, the wrongdoer, along with his or her family, would go directly to the home of the aggrieved. They would bring oven stones, wrap fine mats over their heads, and kneel as a group at the doorstep prostrate for hours or even days in the hot Pacific sun while the injured family deliberated over whether to accept the apology. Eventually, the family's talking chief would come out, accept the mats and stones, and invite the other family inside. It was a risk, though. In some cases, the chief would emerge only to lop off the penitent's head with a battle axe. That's what she's doing, Levi, Anne had said, offering herself up. Anne wrote Missy a note back, inviting her and her parents over for tea, but I wanted no part of it. And now, I would like to tell you what happens when your son gets hit by a car while riding his bike and then dies. For a while, there's genuine sympathy. People you don't know come to your house with tuna noodle casserole. The phone rings so often, you have to shut it off before you go to bed. You get crayon drawings from school children. One little Picasso sent us a picture of a stick bicycle, broken in two, with tears streaming from the handlebars. But then things change. The cops let it be known that after a complete investigation, the accident is your son's fault. Read, his parents' fault. Your son becomes the poster child for reckless biking. The police chief and mayor join forces in announcing a new bike safety program. Thereafter, whenever you run into your neighbors, they blame you for the whole goddamn thing. They don't say it to your face, of course. They whisper it to each other, standing in front of mist-shrouded iceberg lettuce at the ShopRite. He's the one whose kid was riding without a helmet. You'll be glad to know the story has a happy ending. Fairy tales do come true. In her senior year, confronted by the insistent pleas of her classmates, an emotionally bruised Missy Jones agreed to come back to the cheerleading squad as the co-captain, no less, in time for the season opener against Ridge. Perhaps you saw her picture in the paper, the one with the sassy ponytail, come-hither eyes, and lynx-like smile. Missy phoned several times asking to speak with me, but I refused to take her calls. Once, I drove home after work, only to find Missy's cheery berry bim bom Acura parked outside. That car, in front of our house. I didn't stop. As I rolled by, I saw Anne through the window, holding her shirt at her neck. Later, Anne told me Missy had stopped by unannounced. I told Anne if I ever came home and found Missy sitting in my living room, I could not be held accountable for what I might do. But what should I tell her, Levi? Tell her the truth. I'm not going to see her. And that's that. She's just a kid, Levi. She's suffering. Jesus, Anne, I said. I'm suffering too. Do you know 
that I no longer enjoy doing the things that we used to do together, Richie and I, like fishing. I no longer enjoy hooking a worm through the meatiest part so that the barb punctures the skin on the other side and then rearing the line back, releasing the baler, waiting for the rod to shimmy. Believe me, I've tried. The smell of earth and rich roots gets up in my nose and makes me sick. Quick quiz. What is the name of the light stripe that separates an earthworm's head from its tail? Time's up. It's called the clitellum. Do you know how I know that? Of course you don't. My son taught me that. He also taught me that when nightcrawlers are cut in half, they don't die, they regenerate. Imagine that, losing half of yourself and becoming whole again. There's a thing that crawls in the dirt and eats shit that can do that. Thank you. I think we say, oh, now we're going to get spicy. <laughs> Here, let me at least take this out of the way. I want to grab it off of it. Oh, yeah. We, uh, you know, informal. Right. So we thought we'd do a f quick little, we're going to interview each other just briefly, and then Josh is going to do another short reading, and then you can ask more questions if you would like. And there's more cake. So, uh, so I'm not sure how spicy this is, but um, I'm, I'm going to lead into a question by reading a, a very short piece of yours, oh if that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Um, I, uh, this is Eden's novella, uh, If You're Not Like Me. If, I'm sorry, If You're Not Yet Like Me. Um, and here we go. Eden doesn't know that I'm reading this, so. <laughs> when I was a kid, I wasn't sure what kind of woman I would become, but I had a hunch. I dreamt of Valkyries, warriors. I stole the belt from my father's bathrobe and used it to tie saucepans to my chest so that no sword could pierce my heart. I used the saucepan lid as a shield. I imagined that my fingernails were weapons and my teeth too. On long car rides, I saw myself running along the freeway shoulder or in the, or in the brush barefoot but in full armor. I assumed the woman I would be, I'd become would be vicious and beautiful, the roar of some exotic animal made physical. It's not so strange to have high expectations. Once, my mother made me some soup from a can, and without thinking, she left the serrated lid on the counter. I thought it might make a wonderful belt buckle or a deadly frisbee, and I picked it up. I was careful, because I knew that if I wasn't, the lid's sharp metal edges could bite into my fingers and it would hurt. I took the lid to the backyard, where I imagined my army waiting for me. They were already bruised from battle and hungry, and some of them were limping. Gangrene threatened one soldier's leg, and amputation was imminent. I held the promising new weapon aloft for my legions. All 400 of them leaned forward to get a better view, and I felt the air shift. That's what hope feels like. We shall win this war, I called to them. I felt very strong, unstoppable in fact. I imagine, if you're not yet like me in this way, that you will be. The soup can lid glistened in the sun, its sharp edges singing for blood. Um, Eden, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and I have two questions. Um, I guess the first is, I'm so taken by the way you describe hope. That's what hope feels like when the air shifts. And um, I'm just wondering, as a writer, um, how you tackle human emotion, how you bring it to the page. Um, it's really it's a softball. Uh, <laughs> Because you do a great job, and you know it's something that's very difficult to do. Um, 
So we'll start there. Um, I don't. I can't answer that. Um, I will say that my editor wanted me to cut that line. That's what hope feels like, which is really interesting because I liked that line, and I'm glad that you liked it too. Um, I don't know. I think I. I think like all writers in the room, we probably sometimes fail at that of capturing human emotion. Um, I guess my answer is that I'm just as honest as possible, um, and if it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, that that's probably a good sign. Um, and I'm always nervous that I'm becoming complacent in my writing, that I'm depending on used, f you know, common phrasing, or I'm going somewhere that I have gone before, and so I'm always trying to push myself to go somewhere different, so. Is, is hope a theme that you feel like you, you try to write about a lot, you come back to? You know, I never thought about it. I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I should really think about my writing more. Okay. <laughs> um, well, my follow-up is, um, the, the, the title for your book is in that last segment. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that the title? Why does that... Oh, the title of this damn book. It was called originally Imagine Land, which is a, there's a scene where the narrator dates a jerk, a handsome jerk, who talks about this thing called Imagine Land, that in his Imagine Land, everyone's Imagine Land is different. Like in mine, every amazing dress would be $9.99, and <laughs> you could drink coffee without getting like really shaky, and you could sleep in. <laughs> so that's my Imagine Land. So, and there's sort of an idea in the book that... She, she, her past, like when she was a kid, she imagines herself in this way, and she hasn't exactly turned out that way as an adult. She's a 30-something graphic designer who's kind of unhappy with herself and her life. Um, but that didn't seem, the Imagine Land as a title didn't, like when people heard that title, it seemed like they were imagining a different book. So my editor and I really struggled with different titles, um, and she actually suggested this title. And we thought it was a good one, um, because the story is being narrated to the, um, narrator's unborn daughter. So this this idea of partially a confession, partially kind of a cautionary tale about love and the, the pain of love. Um, and this idea that all women will do these sort of embarrassing, awful things and there's no way to avoid it. You wrote this book before Dixon was born. Yes, before I was pregnant, before I swear. Pregnant. So I guess I'm wondering, do you read it differently now? Do you, do you think of it differently now? Um, I'm actually really happy that I have a son and not a daughter. Nice. Just because I feel like there was this fictional version of my life where maybe I had a daughter and I could say these shame, terrible, these things that were obviously in my mind because I wrote them. But now that I have a son, the, narrat the narrative is a little different. And maybe my husband has to give him the cautionary tale slash confession. Yeah. So I'm glad. Very cool. All right, I have one more question for you if I can find this. Um, bear with me here. So one of the reasons I think this the the really nice things about this novella is that it's it's pretty funny. Um, it, she is um, Joellen is the main character, and she's funny in sort of a devastating way, especially when she talks about men. Um, so uh, there's this there's this one very short two sentences here toward the end. She says um, she's talking about this guy Zachary. Uh, she says, his voice rose then, and he smiled the way men do when sex has been presented, or at least its possibility. Imagine a dog. Now show him the leash. It's like that. Um, there's, there's dozens of others I could have picked out. But I guess the amazing thing for me about this character is, is that she's so mean, but yet so likable. And I wonder if you feel that, uh, at least she was for me, I wonder if you feel that humor helps to... Um, humor helps to bring about that likability, or what is it that, that makes that so? Well, I actually thought she was really unlikable. My sister's in the audience, and she was like, ah, she is not unlikable at all. <laughs> and other people are like, she's awful. Um, I do think humor 
helps it because I hope that she's entertaining enough that you sort of, yeah, everybody has that friend that says every the most shocking thing that you never would want to verbalize and you sort of are appalled and delighted by their very presence. So I hope that she's kind of like that. Yeah. I also, she has a kind of, set, this ending is quite sad and, she, and the, the flashbacks to her childhood, I thought, also helped to make her more human that and more vulnerable. I felt like vulnerability is really what makes someone likable. And so the humor is entertaining, but her confessions of insecurity are, I think, what make, at least that would make me feel for her. Yeah, I agree with your sister. I'm glad you like her. Likable, for All sure. Right. All right, but you wouldn't date her. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be tough. Um, okay, so I have a couple questions for Josh. My first one is, as you were reading your the, the first story in the collection, I was really taken with the tone of it. It's very funny. Um, it's quite barbed. Um, he has a, he's talking to the to the to the reader or the listener, um, and then it, it it manages to turn really sad and true and that when he's describing the things that he can't do anymore. And so I wondered, how did you wrestle with the tone? Did you wrestle with it at all? Was it something that just came naturally? It's a great question. I mean, I think for me in this story, um, the tone of the voice is what came first. You know, the, the um, I didn't have the story nailed down, but I definitely, uh, I heard his voice pretty clearly. And it's that s sort of bitter, just really... Um, as you could imagine, you know, if you if you lost a son and you sort of there's 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 this just anger that's just unquenchable, and I think that's the that's the source of it for him. Um, but um, you know, it's also true in some ways. I think that I'm glad you thought it was funny because um, you know I think he, his sarcasm. I mean, again, I think that's what it's fun. Maybe that's why I asked that question because I don't. I think without that, his anger becomes unmanageable. And there were, there were versions of the story early on when that was probably more true. Mm -hmm. That if it's just the anger without, without and, and it's not funny, nothing is funny, right? But yet I do think you, you have to laugh along, I hope, with, with the way he's telling this. Yeah. Um, that was only the first third of the story. You know, the, sto the story eventually is what happens when they do eventually sit down. And again, like you said with Joellen, I mean, I think part of what humanizes him is that is the sort of the process of what happens through this uh, this meeting he has with her. Um, if he was completely unyielding and remained that way, he would be unbearable. Mm. And maybe to some people he is, but I hope I hope that he's not. He's not unbearable, right? We he's already so lovable. We have to ask your sister. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. Um, so a story collection, I remember in, you wrote a great piece for The Millions, which is the site I write for, about being a short story writer and selling, you know, se selling stories to magazines and working on a collection for years and years. And I remember being at Iowa where an editor came and said, you know, if we have a story collection, we really need a, a theme to really, we need a linked story collection or we need some kind of theme to run through it. I remember she said, like Yoon Lee, who was at Iowa at the time, she has China. And I was like, that's not really a theme. She's from China. But anyway. Um, but so I wondered if, you, if there is a through line in this, in this collection. Is there some kind of theme or are they sort of just, what, what holds them together and what differentiates them? That's a great question also. Um, I, I will say, so in that Millions piece, I start with, um, with a true story about being being at Iowa and meeting with an agent, and um, we agents periodically came through and um, you know wanted to talk to us about our work, and I had talked to this was probably the fifth or sixth agent that I talked to, and 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 uh, and this is what I write about that you know eventually they all turned to the same question. I said I'm writing stories. I've been working on this collection for six years. Here's the stories, and they'd say I love love the stories. This is really really good stuff. 
are you working on a novel? And I, I, you know, every time my answer was no. I wasn't. And then this one time I just got sick of it and I said, yes, <laughs> I'm working on a novel. And I had no novel. I had no idea for a novel. I had nothing. But I had come across this like little tidbit about these, um, these they're called saving stations on, on the Jersey Shore. They're the precursor to the Coast Guard. I had found them while researching another story set in New Jersey. And, and I literally just started making it up. I said, I'm, my novel is, a, just tell me what's about. My novel is about uh, it's about saving stations and this terrible shipwreck and this guy who mans the saving station and uh, and and you know she looked at me like I couldn't tell what she thought and I and I literally said you know it, it it's it's a love story <laughs> and and uh, and she said I you know I I mean she was ready to represent me pretty much on the basis of this um, so how does that relate to your story your question I hope it does um, because the point is that I wasn't writing link stories I wasn't writing stories that. Um, that that necessarily had something to do with each other. I, I heard once about a collection that, you know, every story had a pet. And I started to look at my stories and think, you know, can, do they, can I put a pet in every story? Like, what? <laughs> like, how am I going to get this stuff out into the world? And um, and 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 it's funny that um, that ultimately I think this the structure is two states, and. Um, and I do think that they work together as a collection, uh, in part because of, ge of the geography. Mm -hmm. You know, in part because it's about the, the collection is about the interrelationship between people. Almost all the stories have that, and and you know, in, in a subtle way, it's about the interrelationship between the states as well. Um, and so, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that I planned. But I think that it hopefully feels organic in the end. I, I prefer, I'm not always, I mean, I like like all of Kittredge and books like that, but I actually love story collections where there's not, that's becoming such a trend to have linked story collections. That, that's like the pet thing. Right. Just forget about it. Right. Um, my last question is, do you have specific short story writers that you feel that you are um, descendant Descended oh, from, boy. or it's just story writers that you want to share with everyone that you think are just so that's, awesome. That's not a good question. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was um, too no, out of three. I, no, it's it's uh, it's just a very very hard question. Descended from, um, I I don't know that I I could say that. Um, you know, inspired I by. Uh, yeah, I love I love Al I love Alice Munro. Um, you know, um, I love um, the way that she just the the. The span of her stories um, is is just absolutely incredible, and she's writing about the things that I hope I'm writing about, which is sort of um, this kind of, kind of range of human feeling. Um, one of my favorite short story writers is is uh, Bruce Springsteen, um, and uh, and and I and I sort of say that jokingly, but um, you know, um, yeah, I do think that some of his stuff is is a story in three minutes, and. Um, and I heard him interviewed the other day, and he said, you know, one of the things I always wanted to do with my band was to be, uh, for, for the music and the songs to be useful to people. And, uh, and he was talking about his 9-11 album, which was, which was why uh, he was being interviewed. Um, in, in, in a much smaller way, I sort of think of, my, of, of story writing the same way. That if, you're, if in some small way you can't be useful to people, um, you haven't really done your job. Nicely so. put. Um, so we're going to finish with a final reading from Josh and then we'll have a little picking out. Um, this is uh, this I'm reading because it's actually the shortest story in the collection. Thank you. Thanks. 
um, and I can I can read the whole the whole story. Um, and this is one of the New York stories. It's called the Carousel. I've been a carousel man for 33 years. I worked the B&D carousel on Coney Island, one of the originals manufactured by William F. Mangles, which my father operated before me. When my father started up in the business, there were 20-odd full-sized wooden carousels along Surf Avenue, but mine's the only one left. There are a lot of reasons for this, and I'm happy to give you the main one. Kids are different these days. They'd rather sit in the cave somewhere and twiddle a joystick than take a ride on a calliope. Whether or not a carousel makes you rich, Reuben, it can sometimes make you happy. That's what my father told me the day he handed me the keys to the crankshaft on my 25th birthday, and that's the way it was for me. I had started out as a ring boy when I was 13, and even back then, the B&D was one of a kind. It had a 66-key Gebruder organ, 36 jumping horses, 14 standers, and two chariots, figures whittled by the great artists from the Brooklyn School of Carousel Carving, and stainless steel rings that riders could grab for. The sideshow guys used to say that I had the sand in my shoes, and I suppose that's true in a sense. All I ever needed was Coney Island. I worked hard in the summer months and stayed open weekends from November to April, making a few bucks here and there, enough to hang on to an apartment in Flatbush. My sister, my only family member to speak of, died a spinster the year I celebrated my 30th anniversary as a carousel man, and after that, all I had was the B&D, but I never missed any other kind of life. One particular Saturday, I got to work early, feeling restless. Truth was, after all those years, I was thinking about shutting the carousel down for good. I'd recently removed the brass ring because I couldn't afford to give out free rides anymore, and I still couldn't make it pay, even on $2.50 a ride. A buddy of mine knew of a job at the Port Authority, taking tickets on the ferry. It wasn't much, he said, but it was steady. The weather that day was Coney Island, first week of November, back when the month still had something to do with it. I started the morning like any other, by wiping the chalkboard clean, a ritual I'd come to respect over the years. Then I took a fresh piece of white chalk and wrote B&D Carousel, plus 156 days till Easter, and rides, $2.50. By late afternoon, Surf Avenue was empty. Not a single kid had shown up all day, and I'd run out of excuses regarding the Grand Chariot, a figure contributed by master craftsman George Carmel. Several of the carriage's curved planks had separated and popped, and to fix them, I knew I'd have to get inside and see what else had rotted away. A gusty breeze kicked up as I stepped onto the calliope, and sand kernels ticked against the horses. I made my way through the herd until I reached Belinda, grand chariot in tow, her head held a notch higher than the other ponies, and I smiled at her, just like a school kid would. But I didn't let myself dally. I stepped into the carriage with some difficulty owing to a lower back problem that was beyond the realm of modern medicine. Adjusting my weight on the bench, I stretched my legs forward and leaned back under the roof. All sounds from the outside world cut off. So abruptly it startled me. The chariot right off the top seemed small to me, much smaller than I remembered. My knees bent awkwardly into the planking and my elbows chafed the sides. How long had it been since I'd been inside? Twenty years? More? Could this have been the same chariot where I once took my girls on date night? I raised my worn hand and touched the wooden mermaid carved into the bridge. I remem mem remembered staring at this fish girl when I was 16, back when she still had diamonds for eyes, and asking myself, should I kiss Melanie Mendelssohn? I know it sounds crazy, but it was as, as if the mermaid spoke to me and told me to do it, a thing that until that moment I was sure I could not do. 
My back started aching, so I flattened myself lower into the chariot and craned my neck, peering into the hood of the thing, looking for white shavings of daylight where the planks had popped. I saw nothing and tried to shift. My muscles clutched at my shoulders in a spasm. When I looked up, I saw the roof of the carriage curling over me like a wave, blocking out the daylight. And that's when I was overcome with it, spinning. The carousel had started to turn. I quickly pulled myself from inside the pod and leapt out, but as soon as my feet hit the platform, I realized I was wrong. The B&D was completely still. I reached out for a jumper to steady myself and closed my eyes. When I opened them, when I, opened them I saw a boy standing on the sand at the edge of the calliope. I was surprised to see him there alone. Over the years, crime around those parts had gotten pretty bad. Hello, Mr. Polanski, he said. Are you open? He couldn't have been more than nine or ten. He wore a collared brown jacket with wooden buttons, and his hair was slicked back with something like brilliantine, which seemed strange for such a little guy. But the thing that really got me was his voice. It was as if he said every word twice, a fraction of a second apart, so that his sentences were out of register. I sure am, kid, I said, jumping off. He held out a dime, and I couldn't help myself. I laughed. The carousel hadn't cost a dime in 40 years. I looked out across the road toward the ocean. The boy blinked. That's okay, I said. It's on the house today. He shoved the dime into his pocket. Then he searched out his pony, carefully, touching haunches, petting wooden snouts. Finally, he settled on Bella, a blue-eyed jumper, which was not a bad choice at all. I cranked her up and let her go, and she started with a shudder, first time moving in a week. Organ music drifted down West 12th Street on a soft breeze from the ocean. I sat back in my folding chair and watched her spin. The kid held on to that golden pole and leaned forward like a modern-day Lone Ranger. What struck me as he went around rising and falling was his laughter. It was a laughter as pure as any I'd ever heard, edging toward fear but with a musical quality, as if several people were laughing instead of only one. And it reminded me of something, although at the time I couldn't say just what. When the ride ended, he slid off his pony, wove through the horses, and leapt off the platform with two feet. Thank you, Mr. Polanski, he said. That was terrific. He turned to go. Hey, kid, wait a minute, I said. Do I know you? Sure, Mr. Polanski, he said. I come here a lot. I shook my head. In the summer, it was pretty crowded, and he definitely looked familiar, although I made it a point of pride to remember the names of the regulars. Oh, yeah, well, sure, I said. Well, it's good to see you again. The kid smiled. Where's your mom, kid? You live around here? You need me to call you a cab? He wrinkled his eyebrows. Why, she's just there. He pointed toward the vacant lots where the old sideshows used to be, dark beyond the orange glow of the carousel. I nodded. Oh, be careful, I said. Thanks again, Mr. Polanski, he said. And then he turned and ran, his soft shoes tamping down the sand. I shook my head and let out a short breath. Crazy kids, I said. It was then that I first noticed the smell. Air popped caramel corn, and for some reason it didn't occur to me to wonder about it, even though the vendors had stopped coming years before. The boy ran toward the gate, and as he did, he passed the chalkboard. That's when it caught my eye, written there in white chalk, in my father's simple hand. Rides. Ten cents. When I looked up, the boy had disappeared into the dark, windswept street. I stood and ran toward the gate. I thought about my father just then. It can sometimes make you happy. For an instant, I heard the sound of a carnival on the breeze, the distant cry of a lonely barker and the laughter of young love. Then, as quickly as it had come to me, it was gone. Thank you very much.
Um, we, if anybody has any questions, we have some wine and food here as well. If you're or out of wine, ooh, wow, that's that's yeah, sure. Do you teach? No, I don't. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Um, I teach at UCLA Extension Writers Program, and then I also teach. I have my own business called Writing Workshops Los Angeles, and I and my other my nonfiction teachers in the front row, Chris Daly, we teach in our homes. And Leslie Perry's back there. She's on hiatus right now, but she teaches fiction too. Anything? Anything else? Josh, where did you get the title? Oh, it's, um, the, there's a story, that's a title story in the book, it's called Pulp and Paper, and it's about a, um, a, an accident, at a, pul a train accident, an industrial uh, crash at a pulp and paper plant in western uh, New York. So, yes, loosely based on, on, a, on a real uh, similar accident in South Carolina. It's so. interesting because it, it kind of resonated with the sort of, you know, the two locations and having two, you know, yeah. I won't say what's the pulp and what's the paper. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, is pulp and paper available as an ebook? Because that would be funny if it were. It, it will. It will be. I'm told. <laughs> I am told. Yes. Uh, a couple. Um, I think mid October is what they're aiming for. Well, let's write a title for your story. A rough morning. Oh, a rough. That's pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> it's like a rough decade for that couple. <laughs> a short story. Short story would work for that for sure. Rough points. Anything else? Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.